First Thessalonians 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. One of the things that I'm noticing more and more in my own study of First and Second Thessalonians, and I hope that you're noticing this as well, uh, is the great emotional weightiness of ministry. Uh, ministry, service to one another in an official capacity, but in unofficial capacities as well. Uh, there is a great uh, weightiness in ministry, and I think that we hear that weightiness in the very words that Paul uses in writing this letter. Uh, I think that there's a lot of evidence in this letter that Paul uh, has a, a huge heart for ministry uh, that is filled with emotion and passion, love and dedication. And Paul says that we were gentle among you as a nursing mother caring for her child. He says, uh, again, I was affectionately desirous for you. Again, he draws from the metaphor of a father with uh, his own children, teaching and caring for them. And Paul says that uh, he is uh, sad to have been uh, torn away from them. But he says, even though we were torn away from you, our hearts never were. He says to them, you are our very hope and joy and crown of boasting, not just before others, but before our Jesus. We could not bear being away from you. Twice he says this. News of you is what comforts us in our own affliction, uh, Paul uh, says to them, desiring more news from them. And Paul says, we earnestly pray to see you face to face. He says, I live if this is true, if I know you are standing fast in the Lord. And he says, I don't want you, my brothers and sisters, to grieve or to be sorrowful for lost loved ones. 
These are deep and poignant images of Paul's emotional connection with these people. And it's all over 1 Thessalonians, and it's all over 2 Thessalonians uh, as well. If you peer deeply enough, I hope that you've seen that Paul has a lot to say about these, his brothers and sisters, and he also has a lot to say about how these, his brothers and sisters, uh, care for each other in his absence. And keep in mind, these are new Christians. They're growing and, and, and maturing quickly, but they're still, they're new Christians. And not only that, they're actually enduring great persecution. And so they're new Christians uh, that are suffering uh, against hot persecution. And then there's just the ordinary sadness of life, the grieving of lost loved ones. And on top of all this, their founding pastor. Well, he's been forcibly evacuated. And at the close of this letter, Paul doesn't expect them to just maintain the status quo until he returns. How easy that would be. I'm doing my best to be with you. Maintain until I can do that. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't want them to simply maintain the status quo until he returns. Uh, He actually expects them to grow and to mature against all of these obstacles. You know, in many ways, we ought not be ashamed of saying this, that Christians are people who are ideally suited to suffering. We're ideally suited to suffering. We have the grace of God, the electing power of God. We have the plan of God, and we have been adopted by him. We have the Son of God, Jesus, who is our King, who has suffered every indignation in the history of the cosmos, and he has defeated every enemy, his and ours. And this great king will one day come to claim that which is rightfully his. And we have the Holy Spirit not only dwelling in us, but uh, equipping us to care for others in the life of the church, but also convicting us of sin and convicting us, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, of the power of God's word. And so you see, in many ways, Christians are people who are ideally suited to suffering, and uh, we need to remind one another of that. As you see what it is, That in our life today, in this present age, awaiting the second coming of our Savior, our walk is a lot of work. Paul opens his letter by stating that outright, Thessalonians, I know you. I know your situation. I know what you're enduring. And Paul calls it out when he says that uh, you are living a life that is a work of faith, a labor of love, and it requires steadfastness of hope. Paul has said that at the very beginning of the letter. And so Paul wants to be a gentle pastor who uh, loves them, who knows everything uh, about them, all of their hardships and their struggles, uh, but he doesn't want them to sit still. He wants them amidst this suffering to grow and to mature. We see that as he closes uh, this letter. I want to begin by uh, talking a little bit more about the very tone of this passage. In my study of these letters, uh, I am uh, uh, really astounded at how important it is for us to establish the tone of the passage. Uh, Just look at the words that Paul uses at the the very beginning of our passage, uh, verse 12, 13, 14. 
The words that he used are uh, respect and esteem and love and peace and uh, encouragement. Admonition is there as well, uh, but admonition can be simply a warning, uh, but a helpfulness and uh, patience. Uh, Paul wants life within the Thessalonian church to be a life that is not without heart. It's a life that is uh, filled with these uh, kinds of qualities that we don't tend to see much of. Respect, love, peace, encouragement, helpfulness, patience. But Paul wants those things to be inside this church, a part of this life. Uh, This uh, tone in the life of the church, a church that is filled with people who are sensitive to one another's needs, uh, this tone Paul expects to be present within a church that is actually uh, laboring or toiling. Uh, The word for labor in verse 12 is, uh, we haven't seen this word uh, at all in 1 Thessalonians, but when we see it in verse 12, uh, it's a gritty word. Uh, That word for labor uh, really would be better translated as toil. There's toil in this church. What's the toil come from? I've stated a few already, but keep in mind, uh, this is a church that is suffering from opposition uh, from the world. And uh, 2 verse 14, Paul has said, I know that you suffer just as Christians suffer, uh, suffered in Jerusalem and are suffering now. And Paul says, my suffering is really an example to you because I know you're suffering as well. And so they're toiling because of the opposition of the world, the persecution that comes from the world, but they're also suffering, Paul says in 3.5, from the tempter, the, the evil one's really working on them. And Paul has admitted also in this letter the evil one has worked on him. And yet another reason uh, why there's toil in the life of the church, and then there's toil in the life of the church simply because they lack in sanctification. They're growing and mature as a Christian, but Paul says, do this more and more. He says that twice in the letter, do this more and more. He knows that they're lacking in sanctification. Why is there toil in the church? Opposition from the world, the work of the tempter, and their own lack of holiness. But make no mistake about it, the Christian life is a life of toiling. And despite this toil, this church has done some pretty amazing things. I mean, Paul, early in the letter, praises them for some of these things. They're toiling, they're working, they're laboring, they're remaining steadfast in hope. But Paul says not only that, he, he says, uh, you, you are the kind of church that is sounding forth the gospel. You are the kind of church that is serving one another in the life of the church, having turned from originally serving idols. Uh, you are the kind of people who are growing as Christians. You're the kind of people who are an example to believers in Macedonia and Achaia, believers you haven't even met. And so they're toiling And Paul says there's still remarkable things that are happening in their life. But be that as it may, Thessalonian Christians and the Christians of Covenant Presbyterian, we need to know that there is a tone in the life of the church. And if I could summarize this tone for us, I would uh, direct you to think about all of the commands that Paul has for Thessalonian Christians. This is a trick question. All of the commands that Paul has. Those times when Paul, as he's addressing the Thessalonians, he says, do this, do this, don't do that. 
In the Greek, these commands, well, they just, they stand out as if they're, they're automatically highlighted for us. Uh, commands in the Greek language are uh, verbs that show up in such a way that they just scream at you. Uh, they're uh, imperative verbs. And uh, I want you to think about this. Uh, the very first imperative verb, the very first command of Paul is in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 18. Not the first in, uh, imperative in all of the New Testament, but in this letter, it's in 418. And what is that command? Whatever you do, don't do this. Or whatever you do, you must do this. And the great command that Paul has for them is encourage one another. Wasn't that in chapter four? That's the first command encourage one another. The second two are in uh, chapter 5, verse 11. And what do we find there? Uh, We find a a repetition of the first one, encourage one another, and then he adds, build one another up. Isn't that beautiful? So often when we think of the uh, problems in the church, you know, we go to all the big issues, you know, these uh, flagrant sins that need to be stamped out in the life of the church. Uh, We uh, think of all those people who need to have official discipline applied to them. And that's true. Uh, We need to be aware of those things as a a body of believers, but look what Paul's going for. Uh, These things, they just seem so simple. You You just ought to assume them. But Paul says, encourage one another. He says, encourage one another again, 5.11. He says, uh, build uh, one another up. That's the third one also in 5.11. And then in our passage is the fourth one, and it's in verse 13. And he says, be at peace. Regardless of the toil that we experience as Christians in this church, We are to be a people who encourage and build up one another. We are to be a people that live at peace with one another as a congregation. And we might think, yes, that's the low-hanging fruit. That's easy. I want to hear more. Give me the specifics. How many hours a day ought I be reading my Bible? How many hours a day ought I be praying? Well, let me tell you this, encourage one another. See the needs of one another and build them up more rapidly than you build yourself up. And at all times, crave, desire, seek, yearn for peace with your brothers and your sisters. And so you see, Amidst all the toil that this Thessalonian Christian is enduring, with a heartfelt tone, Paul is describing to them how they're to grow as Christians, and he's saying to them, encourage one another, build up one another, and seek peace in the church. But he's going to say more. What does it look like to not just sit still amidst the turmoil, but to actually uh, grow and mature? Uh, All of those imperatives are very important, but Paul uh, gets into specifics. And I think uh, a good way to understand what Paul has to say for the church is he says that uh, you are to grow as Christians amidst toil and labor in the life of the church by following the example of Christ-like discipleship. 
The next two points in my sermon are about that. By following the example of Christ-like discipleship. First, he's going to talk about following the example of those who are your formal leaders in the church. That's uh, verses 12 and 13. Following the example of those who are your formal leaders in the church. But then at verse 14, Paul is going to switch gears and it's not just simply a matter of the example of formal leaders in the church, uh, but rather the spiritual discipleship that happens just by by uh, living uh, together with one another in a respectful way. So these are the next two points of the sermon. The first is that these Christians are to grow through uh, toil in the church uh, by uh, following the example of their various leaders in the church. And this begins at verse 12. Verse 12 is all about uh, those who are over you. Uh, From three different perspectives, verse 12 is all about the people who are in positions of authority over the Thessalonian believers. It's very clear in the Greek that all of these things have to do with the leaders. And so if I were to reverse their order, Paul is going to say that uh, all in verse 12, that leaders in the church lead by admonishing, they lead by serving them in the Lord, and they lead by working among them. I've gone backwards. Leaders in the church are a Christ-like example to the Thessalonian believers uh, by uh, admonishing them, by serving over them in the Lord, and by working uh, among them. Let me tell you what I mean. First of all, uh, notice that Paul does assume that there's an ordered structure in the life of the church. Isn't that interesting? He assumes that this church, though it is young, uh, though it doesn't have the, uh, the various uh, layers of church bureaucracy already established, uh, this is pre-Presbyterianism, but even still, there's structure in that church. Structure in a church isn't just a, an oddity of American de- denominationalism. There are roles in this young church. There are uh, leaders. You know, Paul's gonna talk about this later in his writing ministry in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. He's going to talk about uh, various roles in the church. Ephesians 4 is another place uh, where he does that. Uh, Over and over again, we read in scripture about the uh, roles within our families, uh, roles uh, between a husband and wife, uh, roles with, uh, between uh, parents and their, and their children. Uh, families in scripture are uh, structured according to roles. And not only that, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul will say that the worship order itself uh, uh, conforms to a, a structure of some sort. Paul assumes that there is order in the church at Thessalonica, and I think the reason he assumes that is because uh, the God and Father of the church at Thessalonica is remarkably ordered. God is wonderfully organized. All of creation proclaims the order uh, that uh, God has laid before us that we might uh, see and know who he is. And so there's order in the church. He says in 12, uh, there are those who are over you. Now, he could be talking about pastors or elders or deacons, and it's likely he is, but there's no reason to suspect that he might also not be referring to uh, other forms of leadership, those uh, who are teachers in the church or the uh, elderly in the church, or, and I think this is important after verse 14, uh, those who are known to be very wise in the church. But there's structure. All of us have people who are uh, over us. And earlier in the letter, he uh, praised God that these Christians, 
these Thessalonian believers have become imitators of him, imitators of Silas, imitators of Timothy. And I think that 12 and 13 show us that that leadership has been imitated in the life of this church. They're following Paul, Silas, and Timothy right now as a church. And Paul says, first of all, actually the third thing he says, working backwards, Paul says they're not afraid to admonish. These leaders, they admonish. It's a pretty broad word. It can mean a stern instruction. It will later in 2 Thessalonians, but it can also mean just normal instruction and counsel. Uh, Leaders, they just shouldn't be afraid to admonish. Verse 14, he's going to say, even if you have leaders over you admonishing you, all of us, at least it seems in verse 14, we ourselves ought to be ready to admonish others. But here Paul says those leaders, they have a right to admonish you, to instruct you. And not only that, these leaders, they admonish you, but they also exercise their ministry over you um, in the Lord. You can see that in the passage. They're leaders who minister in the Lord. What does this mean? You know, Jesus taught an awful lot about leadership, and one wonders if many commentators uh, are right when they say that in the Lord is a technical expression for exactly the kind of leadership that Jesus himself taught. So we can look at Mark chapter 10. Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, not so among you. Not so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave slave of all. And so when these leaders in in the Thessalonian church are leading, they're admonishing to be sure, but they're also leading in the Lord. They're servant leaders. They're leaders like mothers and fathers or stewards. They're gentle and loving, and they see that they themselves serve a greater leader, and that is Jesus Christ, their king. And then at the very beginning of verse 12, It seems as though this is the preeminent example of the kinds of leaders that Thessalonians uh, have. He says their example of leadership is the kind of leadership that is labor among you. You know, we glossed over that quickly. But think about this. Those who are leading in the church at Thessalonica, they are laboring among you. They work with their hands. Paul's already said that at the end of, or or, uh, in verse 11 of chapter 4. They work with their hands, but they're right there with you. These are good leaders to Paul. This is how Paul describes leadership. Yes, they admonish, but they, they serve in such a way that they are exemplifying Jesus Christ's service, who became least of all, serving his disciples And not only that, they're the kinds of leaders that actually get alongside of you and they work with you in the life of the church, which which also means you're called to be a laborer in the church as well, whether you feel like you're a leader or not. And we work together. And so these are the kinds of leaders that Paul tells them to love and to esteem because of their work. You know, there are many biblical cautions to those who teach and lead. Uh, teachers and leaders, they have a special accountability uh, before God. They ought to treat it seriously. But they also ought to know that no leader serves perfectly. No church has perfect leaders. 
Leaders don't always admonish when they should admonish. Uh, leaders uh, aren't always uh, showing forth the leadership that Christ has. And leaders aren't always on their uh, hands and knees working alongside you. But all of us who serve in a role of leadership, whether by official title, uh, by, um, a, uh, as, a, as a teacher, or by uh, our ministry in our families, or just by sheer, ma- sheer maturity of our Christian faith, now, our leadership pattern comes from Christ's leadership pattern. And Paul's leadership, and the kind of leadership that's happening in Thessalonica is the kind of leadership that is itself a proclamation of the gospel. What a beautiful description this is of the Thessalonian church. And notice how Paul just assumes it. This is what a church ought to be. And so uh, amidst toil, they're growing because they have these leaders who are Christ-like examples of leadership. But not just that. Look what happens in verse 14. Paul seems to switch gears. This church, this church that is uh, living amidst toil, a church that's not supposed to be sitting still, a church that's supposed to be growing. How are they growing? Well, it seems in 14 through 22 that they're growing just by living together as a a spiritual community. Paul here offers uh, not just a few commands, but lots of commands. If you were to see all those command verbs in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5 lights up with them. And and what what are we to take from this? Uh, Paul offers a lot of commands. A lot of these commands can be grouped in threes. We've seen that in Paul's letter elsewhere. But he says, uh, beginning in verse 14, that there are specific issues in the lives of our brothers and sisters, and we need to attend to these specific issues. And it seems to me that there's three of them. Beginning in verse 14, there's three issues that we find in the Thessalonian church we ought to look for uh, in our church. And Paul says, uh, minister in those areas with patience. He says, be patient with them. Do you want to know, you know who they are? This is what Paul says. He says, admonish, but not just admonish anyone. He says, admonish the idol. And he uses a, a, a soldier word. Uh, the, word I, the word that he uses for idol doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. But people much smarter than I say that this is a terminology that comes out of classical literature in, uh, in war settings. Admonish those people who aren't battle ready. Have you ever seen that translation? They're people who are not taking things seriously. What would they not be taking seriously? Well, given the context of the letter, they're not taking seriously the return of Jesus. God is watching us. God has expectations for us. Your Lord and Savior will come. Your Lord and Savior has expectations for the way that you live your life. And we think it's just, you know, fine, lazy people. It's not just that. Admonish the idol. Look for people who are not ready for the return of Jesus. They've let their holiness get away from them. They are uh, living in patterns with great joy, not acknowledging that those are sinful patterns, uh, patterns that ought to be uh, fought against. We're looking for those people who aren't battle ready, and Paul says admonish them. And he moves on, he says, and encourage the faint-hearted. Uh, build up those who are discouraged in their life. This word for faint-hearted, it could mean spiritual discouragement, but it doesn't have to. Look for people who are faint-hearted. And what do you do? You you encourage them. And then he says, help the weak. Now this word, the weak, is actually a medical word. Help those who are ill. But clearly Paul is not simply talking about those uh, who have physical ailments. Uh, He is talking about those who are also morally ill. 
there is a sickness that is in their life and they're struggling with it. Now, I want you to think which of these three kind of people you least likely want to be around. Those who aren't battle ready, those who are just uh, gloomy and discouraged about life, or those who are morally ill. Obviously, don't say your answer. But you have one, don't you? And the instruction that Paul gives is so very simple in a way. It's fearful, but it's simple. I want you to encourage them. I want you to, I want you, or I want you to admonish them. I want you to instruct them in the word. I want you to encourage them, lift them up. I want you to help them. Now, sometimes we think it's, it's got to take, I, I, I need a book. I need a Bible study. Uh, I need something that I can give to them. I need a website. I need, I need, a, I need a podcast. I need something. Paul says, admonish, encourage, and help. Now, the gritty truth is this. Uh, Not only do we know people in the church that are like that, uh, we know that we ourselves have been like that or are like that in one or two or all three of these ways. And so, when we happen to not be like this in one or two or three of those ways, look for those who are hurting and are struggling and admonish them and encourage them and help them. All of us ought to know what it's like. And so uh, Paul then begins with really just some things that are, that are relatively uh, simple. Uh, be patient with these individuals, but know their hurts and admonish and encourage and help. Uh, and then Paul, in verse 15, uh, then he goes on to look at something that seems like less uh, specific and more general. These would be uh, general impulses among the church body. He says in verse 15, he says, uh, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That's in verse 15, and it seems to be a blanket statement. There's a a general uh, impulse or an inclination in the life of a Christian church that these are the kind of people who are not trying to repay evil for evil. Uh, These are the kind of people who are looking to do good to one another and to everyone. And and Paul kind of uh, tightens down on that, I think, by saying, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. How am I going to live with my brother and sister and not seek to repay evil for evil? to get them in the way that they have gotten me? How am I going to live with my brother and sister and to always seek to do good to them? Always, Paul says. Well, uh, Paul doesn't tell us specifically. He says this, though. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. I love that praying without ceasing is right in the middle. If I don't go to God, I'm I'm not going to have a heart that's full of joy and rejoicing. And I'm likely going to have a vindictive attitude towards my brothers and sisters. If I'm not praying without ceasing, I'm not likely to give thanks in all circumstances, but I'm going to delight in publicly uh, telling people uh, those things that I am not thankful for. And praying without ceasing is right in the middle. And so in verse 14, he's talking about specific issues in the lives of our brothers and sisters. But in 15 through 18, he's talking about a general impulse in the church body. In general, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. And in general, always seek to do good uh, to one another and to everyone. And then in verse 20, something happens. He's spoken specifically in 14, general impulse 15 through 18. In verse 20, many commentators believe that these are aspects that have to do with worship in the church. 
And here he's talking about uh, their actual worshiping life together. Is 20 through 22 all about a corporate worship service? I don't know. But there are very trusted commentators that say that it is about corporate worship. He says in verse uh, 21, he says to test uh, everything. I'm going backwards again. First in 21, to test everything. One commentator says that this is the kind of language, it's marketplace language, so in order to test something, you have to see if it's a counterfeit. You hold it up to something that's real. You're testing it to determine that it's a counterfeit, and you're gonna do something with it. You're testing something to determine if it's real, and you're gonna do something with it. And this commentator reminds us that in Deuteronomy chapter 13, the people of Israel were people who were called to test prophets, test them, test them against the word, but also test them against known prophets. And Paul says, uh, I want you to test everything so that you can hold fast to that which is good and that you can abstain from or drop that which is evil. And Christians always have this uh, testing mentality. Test everything, Paul says. And that does have ramifications for how we view our worship. You should be testing me. You should be testing all of those who are teaching you God's word, going to God's word, confirming that this is indeed what God's word says. God has made us to be a people who test. We are people who know about the world. We know about God. We know about one another. We know about ourselves. Why? Because God has made those things known to us. And so we're called to exercise the revelation that God has given to us. Test everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Drop that which is evil. And Paul says in verse 20, he says, don't despise prophecies. It just gets thornier and thornier, doesn't it? Don't despise prophecies. Now, he could refer to miraculous prophetic ministries. It's such a horrible thing when you look at your favorite scholars and your favorite scholars disagree. That is just the worst thing. Who do you follow? Some scholars will say that uh, to not despise prophecies is a reference to miraculous things that are happening in the church. And and Paul says, uh, partake of those miraculous things, pay attention to those things. But then those commentators would go on to say, that kind of miraculous stuff happened then but not now. But I wonder, I wonder if not despising prophecies is just Paul's language for not despising the revealed word. As the word is proclaimed and taught, don't despise that. I suspect that's really what he means in verse 20. He's he's referring to injunctions from God, a traveling uh, preachers who would come and speak. And and Paul says, uh, listen to them. You're testing, verse 21, but if they are genuine, don't despise the prophecies, their words. Right, and then verse 19, don't quench the spirit. What does that mean? The word for, uh, extin- for quench is actually to extinguish. Is, is, uh, is this something uh, that it has to do with miraculous gifts in the church? Uh, and some scholars that I like actually believe that. that it refers to these miraculous gifts. And, and Paul says, don't, don't extinguish uh, those miraculous attestations. But of course, those miraculous attestations don't happen today. Here's what I think Paul means in verse 19. John Stott says that verse 19 occurs right between two sets of imperatives. Remember, those are the command words. And verse 19, it shows up right in between two sets. And, and, and Stott says that, the, that not quenching the spirit refers to both of those sets of imperatives. And here's what he means. He says, don't quench the spirit by refusing to rejoice, pray, and give thanks. 
That would be quenching the spirit. This is your spiritual life in the church, to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. And what Paul would be saying then, uh, according to this in verse 19, is he's saying, uh, don't quench the spirit as the spirit enables you to do that. Don't fight the spirit, but freely and happily, by God's grace, rejoice and pray and give thanks. And then John Stott would go uh, on the other side of that uh, phrase, not to quench the uh, Holy Spirit. And he says, uh, don't quench the Spirit by refusing to listen to the Word and refusing to test the Word. That would be another way, uh, the opposite side of that uh, command to not quench the Holy Spirit is to not quench the Spirit by refusing God's Word, saying, I hear you, I see it before me, but I won't believe it and I won't conform to it. To stop, that is quenching the Holy Spirit, refusing to listen to the word and refusing to test the word. Now, there's evidence for this. It is the very Holy Spirit that is enabling power for us to do any of these things that Paul is commanding us to do. Paul tells us to do these things. I cannot do these things without without God's Holy Spirit enabling me. And that is how Paul closes this passage. Remember the topic that's on Paul's mind, his pastoral concern for how these believers in this difficult setting of their life as a church, how these believers are going to grow in their faith. Amidst this toil, grow in their faith. It's through a godly leadership, and then it's through this vibrant participation of discipleship together in the life of the church. But look at the benediction at the very end. That's where I wanna, that's where I wanna take us. He says in verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. If you have heard anything in this sermon, I want you to hear this. Each of these commands, each of these imperatives ought to cause us to see our own lack, our own sinfulness. Because when you come to verse 23, this becomes music to your ears. May the God of peace himself sanctify you. May he do it, and may he do it completely, whereas you will never be able to do this completely in this present age. And then Paul says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. I I can't imagine even one of those. Paul says, may your whole spirit and soul and body, may all of it be kept blameless. May all of you be kept blameless. There's, there's, there's always these two things in preaching God's word as a reformed minister. There's always the desire to highlight grace and sovereignty and the operative impact of the Holy Spirit on our lives, God's work. But there's also uh, that desire that ought to be there in the preaching of the word to remind us that we are called to be a people who are well-suited to suffering and toiling, to striving against the patterns of this world, against the evil one, and against the sin within us. And therefore, do these things and don't do these things. And I feel this as a reformed pastor, these two things together. Uh, I want to speak of God's electing power and his sovereign grace, and I want to also uh, remind us that we are called to live holy lives. Uh, We have to read 1 Thessalonians 5 in that way. Paul is very serious about these commands. But I love where he finishes. 
and you heard this benediction at the end of our service last week, I want you to listen to it again, and this is where I want you to take your comfort. Our Christian life is very difficult. It is hard. But we still need to talk about these things. We need to strive as best as possible to encourage one another and build one another another up and to seek peace as a body. We must do that. We cannot sit still. We cannot be lethargic. We have to be fit for battle. Hear that. Know that. However, take this to heart as well. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that you minister to us, that we are not left alone in our sanctification. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you sustain us in the labors and the rigors of our sanctification. Oh, dear Jesus, would you come and would you sanctify us as we are intended to be sanctified by your power, by your strength. Oh, Jesus, we trust you You are faithful, and we know that you will surely do it. In your name, our Jesus, amen.